is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I told you about just a few of the incidents of officer-involved shootings so far this year. The first United States climate activist to be killed by authorities, Tyree Nichols, whose death and the subsequent charges to stem from it are being looked at as a blueprint for change, and the three men, Oscar Sanchez, Keenan Anderson, and Takar Smith, who were killed in Los Angeles within 48 hours of each other. Today, I'll be focusing on one case, that of Manuel Ellis of Tacoma. His beating and restraint-induced death was horrific, but hope remains that the responsible parties will face justice. A Washington Post investigation found that in 2015, 25% of those killed by police were deemed, quote, mentally unstable. An L.A. Times report found that in L.A. County, from 2000 to January 2023, 993 people have been killed by police. Almost all of them were men. Less than 10% of L.A. County's population is black. However, they make up 24% of those killed by police. White people are more than 25% of the population, but are only involved in 19% of incidents. Since 2000, 2000, only two officers in L.A. have had charges brought against them. In all of the U.S., 1,192 people were killed by police in 2022. So let's bring this topic back to the Pacific Northwest. Statistics gathered from 2023 to 2022 put Spokane, Washington in the company of Albuquerque, St. Louis, Oklahoma City, and Bakersfield as a city with one of the highest rates of incidents per population. With a population of 228,989 and 21 police-involved killings in that 10-year span, Spokane had an annual rate of 9.2 killings as opposed to Seattle's 4.3. By default of the very white population, more white people were killed, but black people still had a 1.8 times higher rate of being killed than white people. March 3rd, 2020. Oh, what a time. We were two weeks away from the country shutting down. The furious uprising surrounded George Floyd's murder at the end of May was still months away. But in Tacoma, Washington, a death at the hands of police led to public outcry and charges for the officers. Before I get into this story, I want to warn listeners that, like the brutal videos we see, what happened to him is graphic. It was as upsetting for me to write as Jessica Williams and Misty Largo's deaths in Street Kids. The details matter here. It's important to understand the extreme cruelty he experienced and how common it occurs. Listener discretion is advised. Manuel Ellis, who went by Manny, had fallen in love with going to church. He didn't just attend, he played drums in the band, and he played them well. The 33-year-old was a lifelong Tacoman, born there in August of 1986. Manny's drum skills were celebrated when he was in high school, earning him a spot in the jazz band. Before graduating in 2004, he would also show off his athletic skills, competing in state competitions for track and field. Manny went on to go to Tacoma Community College, where he took courses in sales and marketing. His long-term goal was to own and operate his own landscaping business. Above all was Manny's family. He had two children, 11-year-old Jody and 18-month-old Alexis. 
He was close to and loved by his mother, grandmother, nieces, and nephews, of which Manny would often babysit. Those who loved him say he had an infectious smile and laugh. He had a good sense of humor on top of being kind, selfless, giving, and nurturing. He delighted in sharing his love of sports, comic books, superheroes, and music with the children in his life. He also loved sharing his newfound love of God and the church. Throughout the years, Manny struggled with addiction issues, but he had support from those who loved him and he was focused on keeping straight. Besides the drums, Manny would also play the piano or keyboard in church, participating in several services a week. March 3, 2020 started as a normal night for Manny. He had been playing drums at church until about 9.30 p.m. At that time, Manny was living with a church member who he looked up to as a mentor. The two men arrived at their home around 10 p.m. Manny FaceTimed his mom from just after 10 until about 10.30. Manny's sister was home at the time, and she knew from his distinctive laugh that it was her brother on the other line. After the call, Manny had some burgers for dinner before going out to the 7-Eleven for a late-night snack, something he often did. Manny and the clerk were friendly, greeting each other as he entered. The clerk later said he was a, quote, really nice kid, really respectful. He always said hi. It was 11.11 p.m. when Manny said goodnight to the clerk, a box of donuts and bottle of water in his hands. Manny started his walk home. About a mile away at 11.16, officers Christopher Burbank and Matthew Collins were completing a traffic stop. Once it was done, they drove away, ending up at the intersection of 96th Street South and Ainsworth Avenue. At 11.21, Manny crossed paths with the patrol car, which was stopped at a red light. Behind their car were two vehicles— Right behind them was witness S.M. Her ex-boyfriend was driving another car behind her. He is documented as K.L. Their daughters were in the backseat of K.L.'s car as the former couple was dropping them off at S.M.'s sister's home. To the left of the intersection was S.C. He was a pizza delivery driver headed back to the restaurant after dropping off a pie. None of the three witnesses knew Manny or the officers before that night. According to witness accounts, S.M. and K.L. saw Manny walking on the sidewalk, passing the houses of the neighborhood, probably excited to get into those donuts when he got home. As he walked past the police car, he stopped walking and started speaking with the officer, who remained in the vehicle. It seemed pretty casual. Witnesses even thought at first that either the cops or Manny recognized each other. They had maybe even been old friends. The interaction appeared respectful, peaceful, and there was no aggression shown by either party, at least at first. After that 10 to 15 second interaction, Manny continued his walk. Before cameras were rolling, witnesses claimed the passenger door of the cruiser was thrown open, striking Manny, causing him to fall to his knees. Before he could get up and figure out what was going on, Officer Burbank left out of the car and was on top of Manny. Officer Collins then exited the driver's side and walked around the front of the car before joining Burbank on top of Manny. Besides the eyewitnesses, there were digital witnesses. Altogether, SM, KL, and SC filmed the incident with their phone cameras, and there was a doorbell camera across the street that picked up video and audio. There were radio calls and taser activation data, all of which were sent to forensic video analysts Grant Fredericks and David J. Hallimore. Combining all of the information, they were able to create a single video documenting the incident, making a comprehensive timeline of exactly what happened. Once the officers were out of the car, the cameras were rolling. Side note, while there are legal variations from state to state regarding filming police, just know that you can. Our First Amendment right protects it. They are public employees paid by taxpayers. They have no rights to privacy while working. There are some tips, though. 
Make sure it isn't hidden. That can get tricky with wiretapping laws and other loopholes and attempts to protect the cops. If your phone is taken, they do not have any right to delete photos or videos. That could be considered destruction of evidence and or obstruction of justice. Obviously, you can't be breaking the laws to film them. For example, you can't be on private property or be obstructing the police while filming. But don't let an officer say, you're obstructing my duty, make you stop filming. That might be a tactic to try to just trick you into stopping. And anytime you are stopped for anything, you can ask, am I free to go? If you are, then get out of there. Sometimes permission isn't just given in hopes that you'll say something. And as always, the second you are in custody or being questioned, ask for a lawyer. That does not make you guilty. It can keep you safe. In addition to the video compilation, almost all of the information about what took place was found in the public charging documents. So while I do believe in fair trials and being innocent until proven guilty, these documents lay out what happened, as does the video. And with lack of any proof as to what the police say happened, I'm going with what I'm able to read and watch. With eyes and lenses on them, Burbank and Collins, after tackling Manny, began to beat him, striking him multiple times. Burbank then wrapped his arms around Manny and lifted him into the air before slamming him into the pavement. Somehow, as he was doing this wrestling-esque move, Burbank also punched Manny. On the ground, Manny's body curled into the fetal position. As Burbank backed away, the 7-Eleven bag was silently carried off by the night's blustering winds. Then it was Collins' turn. The wording makes it unclear if Collins then jumped or just dropped his weight, but he was then on top of Manny. I was unable to find reports I felt 100% confident in, but several sources said that Manny was about 5'11 and weighed around 170 pounds. Matthew Collins was 6 feet tall, 215 pounds. Christopher Burbank was also 6 feet tall and weighed 160 pounds. For a little history on these two, both men had been on the police force for about four years. They had also both been in the Army for eight years. Matthew Collins had previously been on the SWAT team and had training in grappling martial arts. He even taught classes on defensive tactics. According to records, they had both been trained in crisis intervention. With Collins on top of Manny, he began punching Manny in the head with a closed fist. Staying close, Burbank pulled out his taser and watched on. Collins then struck Manny in the head four additional times. With each strike, Manny screamed out in pain. After the fifth hit, SM opened her car door and shouted to the officers, Hey, stop. Oh my God, stop hitting him. Stop hitting him. Just arrest him. The next move may have been in response to that request, but more likely the men were so far gone in the moment they just didn't even hear her. That was when Collins moved behind Manny, wrapping his arm around the front of his neck and applying a neck restraint while Burbank continued to hold the taser aimed at Manny. This was all within 56 seconds of Manny being knocked down. At that point, SC, the pizza guy, started to film. To tighten the squeeze of the neck hold, Collins then locked his hands together. This is called a lateral vascular neck restraint, or LVNR. Its definition, as determined from federal case Peterson v. Smith, LVNR is described as a hold that involves bilateral compression of the neck, compressing the carotid arteries, which supply blood to the brain, the jugular veins, which return blood from the brain to the heart, and the carotid sinus, which measures and regulates blood pressure of the brain. An LVNR hold can render someone unconscious in just four to seven seconds. If maximum pressure is applied, like by locking your arms together, courts have determined that the hold can constitute deadly force. For that reason, along with public outcry, some police departments have abandoned chokeholds. 
All witnesses, both in vehicles and in the surrounding homes that were later interviewed by police, stated they never once saw Manny fight back. He never even attempted to raise a hand or to strike anyone. There were never any signs of aggressive behavior. SC, Pizza Man, later said, quote, It doesn't seem like he was fighting at all to me. He wasn't even defending himself. He was struggling, but not fighting. As the chokehold continued, Burbank pointed the taser to Manny's chest. In what looked to be a surrender position or just a silent begging to be let go, Manny, with a taser aimed at him and an arm choking him, freed his hands enough to raise his arms over his head with his palms out. Moments like this are why people chant, hands up, don't shoot, when marching in the streets. Somehow, Manny and Collins ended up almost upright on their knees. Then, Collins yanked Manny back by his neck and twisted him so they fell to the side. Once again, Manny worked his arms free to show he was unarmed and scared. Burbank must have been scared of the unarmed choking man as well, as he fired his taser straight into Manny's chest and initiated a five-second round of electricity. Sickened by what he was seeing, K.L. exited his vehicle. Scared for her ex and her children, S.M. screamed for him to get back in the car with the kids. It's not that S.M. didn't want to help, but she was scared. K.L. was a black man. If he approached the situation, it could have escalated to be even more violent, and two men could have ended up dead. K.L. got back in his car and watched on. The taser was done shocking Manny, and he lay motionless, but still in a chokehold. Finally, Collins released his arm from Manny's neck. Getting up from the ground, Collins then pushed down on Manny's head, mashing it into the hard, gravel-covered pavement. It isn't until that moment that the first radio call surrounding the interaction was made. The officer's location was shared, and it was stated that they were dealing with a, quote, unknown trouble. They hadn't called when first faced with whatever danger they had perceived from Manny, which we'll get into later. They didn't call for backup when the taser was unholstered. Collins then activated his microphone in what is known as a mic click. This is the equivalent of calling 911 and leaving the phone off the hook, or however people would say that now, I guess just not hanging up your phone. With his mic on, Burbank then tackled Manny. Without speaking, a mic click then leaves the decision up to the dispatcher to decide if the click is, first of all, intentional, and secondly, if those on the other end are needing help of any kind. After the shock and tackle, Manny started to come to. As he did, he began screaming and, quote, writhing in pain. With the taser probe still in his chest, the officer grabbed Manny's arms and held his hands behind his back while pushing him into the concrete. A moment I will never forget from the summer of 2020 was marching across the Burnside Bridge in Portland. It felt like there were thousands of us. We had signs, we were shouting chants. But once we were on the bridge, we were asked to lay down on our stomachs with our hands behind our backs for nearly nine minutes, a symbolic protest against how George Floyd was pushed into the street for the same amount of time. I had a poster to lie on. I didn't have a body on my back or a knee in my neck. I had never thought about the pain of being pinned on a surface like that. Within just a couple of minutes, my knees, face, and chest were seriously uncomfortable due to the rocks, debris, and pavement. It was a serious moment of checking my privilege, not just about people who get pinned to the ground, but those who have to sleep on it. I just hadn't thought of it. And imagining George trying to breathe while being pinned on a painful surface, it was heartbreaking. And the same goes for Manny. Now he had not only been beaten about the head and face, choked, and tasered, he was back on his stomach with his arms behind his back, prongs in his chest, and two large men pushing him into the pavement. I can't imagine the pain he was feeling, combined with the terror of knowing his life was in danger. Within a few seconds of holding his hands back, the taser was set off for another five-second round. 
Manny screamed out in pain. His body started to twitch while the two men remained on top of him. At that point, SM and KL left the scene. As they drove around the car and the men, they continued recording, capturing one of the officers giving the order for Manny to put his hands behind his back, where they already were. The other officer said, quote, you're going to get it again. SC, the pizza driver, then left as well. And that may sound cruel or terrible, but what do you do in that scenario? Are you going to get help if you call the police on the police? If you approach them, would they just tase, shoot, or beat you? If you have children with you, you can't take that risk. If you have a job you can't lose, you can't take that risk. Maybe if all three of them had approached, it would have been different, but that's just part of why our society is trained to keep police on a pedestal. So if you see them doing something like this, your default, or so they hope, is you assume they're doing their job and it's not your situation to interfere with. Once the witnesses left, the taser was set off again, five more seconds to the chest. SM dropped her kids off and she returned to the scene, quote, because I was scared for Manny. I was just like, wanted to go figure out what, what happened to him or like why that happened. But by the time she returned, more officers had arrived and they had closed off the area. SC also returned for the same reasons. He too couldn't get close enough to help. It was less than a minute after the witnesses left that Manny first told the officers he couldn't breathe. But he wasn't just saying, I can't breathe. He was saying, can't breathe, sir. Can't breathe. Breathe, sir. Please, sir. A gut-wrenching moment talked about by the family's lawyer during a press conference. What we learned is he said, I can't breathe, sir. I can't breathe, sir. I can't breathe, sir. A clear sign that it's not only a struggle for breath, but an attempt to still be respectful in your last moments of life. A sign that he wasn't the aggressive person that law enforcement claimed he was. In response to Manny's pleas for help, one of the officers said, shut the fuck up, man. Apparently, the dispatcher, hearing the scuffle and yells, decided to send back up to the scene. The first to arrive was Timothy Rankin. Let's talk about Timothy Rankin for a moment. He is six foot two, 200 pounds. He joined the Tacoma Police Department in 2018 after serving six years in the Army and two years with the Department of State as a security contractor. While in the Army, Rankin took a combat life-saving course and was trained in crisis intervention. Then he went through and graduated from the Basic Law Enforcement Academy, but not with flying colors. After his involvement with Manny's death, the Seattle Times looked into Timmy Rankin's history and discovered an upsetting tidbit of information. The Academy had actually sent a memo to the Tacoma PD. In that memo, they were warning TPD of concerning behaviors surrounding their newest recruit, Timothy Rankin. It was December 2018 when Rankin was given a test at the Academy. As part of a simulated training, Rankin was given the task of completing a welfare check in a park. This controlled simulation was given with the purpose of practicing non-lethal force. In doing that simple welfare check in a park to practice non-lethal force, Timothy shot and killed the simulated person. Two months after that, he was hired by the TPD. To me, that sounds like a fail. Sounds like this person is not ready to be handed lethal weapons and to be placed in public but I guess the Academy has pretty low standards. Could you imagine getting a test from work, Emily? Like, I don't know, please order these files or do this Excel spreadsheet and instead you like shot your boss and you get to keep your job? 
No, I can't. <laughs> or any test and you just don't pass it, let yeah, alone hurting someone. You but would you... think there would be a protocol that after failing that simulation, there's some sort of additional training that would be required and yeah. then have to retake it and pass. Exactly. Yeah. Instead, it's like it's more just here's how he did in that. So what we're learning is that it, that test had no... Yeah, it didn't matter. Factor in him like graduating or passing? Apparently not. So what is the point of it in the first place? That is a very good and valid question. The Academy was nice enough to warn Tacoma with that memo. In it, the instructor of the simulation claimed Rankin went into what is called mental condition black, a term used to describe someone who, triggered via PTSD, has something akin to a panic attack. Seattle Times reporter Patrick Malone said regarding mental condition black, you lose some of your senses. For instance, there was an auditory exclusion. Rankin was not hearing what his partner was telling him. He was not hearing what was coming across radio traffic to sort of guide his actions. This seems like a really obvious, not a great fit for your career. Yeah. We're sorry you can't graduate the academy. I am am well aware how many people coming out of the military have PTSD, but Mm -hmm. like that's that means you're not equipped to be in that situation where with taxpayer dollars paying yeah. your paycheck, protecting people. Well, in your own danger, if you're going into what's basically a panic attack. Yeah, that's, like that's dangerous for you. For, for like Timothy, you wouldn't like, hire someone like that to do air traffic control. Exactly. Even. Like that is not an OK situation. A high pressure job. Yeah. No. How is that even possible that they're like. Okay, that should have a psychiatrist sign off Mm -hmm. on that like that. That's a big problem. Yeah, they shouldn't have even let him put that on his resume to apply for the police. Yeah, that he passed that in any sort of capacity. I'm like real worked up about this. That's yeah. Well, and that they have a name for the condition and it's like, oh, that's what happened to him. Then why did he pass? That should be an automatic. You are not allowed to apply for this. And here's our therapist number. Exactly. Yeah. TPD marked the information from the memo as a red flag, meaning it would eventually need to be dealt with. In going through his public file, the Seattle Times did not find any notation that implied Rankin had received any kind of psychological help or that anything was done in regards to the red flag. It was noted, however, that it was possible he did receive those things, but because it was related to medical care, it didn't appear in his public record. And they just had that on like a to-do list. Like They're like, well, let's we'll keep an that. eye out on this yeah, guy. We got to paint the shed, Jeez. rake up the leaves and make sure this guy isn't. Or basically, let's wait until he fucks up until so he kills someone. hugely. Yeah. And then what's the, they just said, well, we noted it. Yeah. <laughs> this person told that person, that person told that person. It's like no one person. wants to take responsibility of like hiring him and they're so, and passing there's, him. There's such desperation too to have officers that that kind of thing is accepted. But. Shouldn't be. <laughs> Can I, I have another question about I'll that always... simulation? Is it simulation just like a a state? It's a staged interaction. That's what I took it as. Yeah. And in that, <laughs> he killed somebody. Yes, it was. Wow. I don't know crazy. if it was actually out at a park or if they had just like a training facility and like they're like, okay, yeah, exactly, like Cop City, and like here's this person laying on a bench, maybe a homeless person or something. Go check on them. And that was the welfare check. And somehow it went so awry that he ended up grabbing his lethal weapon, even though the training was specifically about less lethal or non-lethal force. He couldn't even. So he failed across the board. He couldn't. He couldn't fake it through a simulation. It wasn't even. He failed by 
going lethal, he failed like the premise of the test, which was non-lethal force. De-escalation. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, beanbags, or I'm not sure what they expected him to use, but he, he, he skipped over a few steps, you know. Within a year of his hiring and the memo, Rankin was involved in another incident where he was accused of excessive force. Dustin Dean was arrested by Timmy Rankin and Messiah Ford, another man you'll hear about in a bit, in a phone video taken just three months before Rankin would encounter Manny, he and Ford can be seen dragging Dustin down a flight of stairs. Once off the stairs, Rankin put his knees in Dustin's back as he lay on the ground in prone position. As they did so, Dustin yelled out that they were hurting him, but they didn't stop. After the news coverage of Manny's case, Dustin filed a $500,000 lawsuit against the city of Tacoma. Did he win? Uh, I believe it's... I didn't see an answer, or so I don't know if Maybe they paid him yeah. off to not pursue it. And that's another issue. Okay, so if you're racist, you don't care if cops kill black people, uh, or you're pro-cop, they should have every right to do whatever they want, fine. What about all that money? Besides what is paid by taxpayers for payroll, tanks, weapons, gear of all kind, not to mention years and years of pensions, there are hundreds of lawsuits annually. The Washington Post found that from 2010 to 2020, more than 7,600 officers were involved in legal settlements, amounting to just over $3.2 billion, with a B, dollars being given to victims and families of. That money was spread across 40,000 payouts to resolve lawsuits. Of those 7,600 officers, 1,200 of them had been the subject of at least five incidents. 200 officers had 10 or more complaints or lawsuits that were financially settled. 10 or more. That is a money pit. Like, what a waste of funds. And could you find me another job where you, like, not only hurt people physically, but you're, like, causing financial damage to the company? And they're like, sure, stay All that takes is some accountant to come in and put that in front of someone and they'd want to rectify in a normal company. Right. If somebody is causing that many lawsuits, you get rid of them. Yeah. Or you put them in a position where they're not going to cause lawsuits. Yeah. So what is going on? This guy has an issue. Maybe he should be at a desk. That's those are insane numbers. Yeah. Ten or more. Two or more is too much. Exactly. The second one is like, okay, this is obviously an one issue. One puts you on a major probation. If not Two, gone. Yeah. I Wow. Hey, by the way, you cost us $3 million the other day. That's shocking. Yeah. I couldn't believe that. When I saw like 200 of them had 10 or more. Like, I, to be a fly on the wall in that conversation of, of like talking about that and being, okay, yeah, I'm the, okay with that being number. Being the lawyer going in again, like, hey, we're here for... Officer Johnny again, eight times the charm. It's just really crazy when you, when like corporate America, I sit and watch people without, it seems, a care in the world lay off 10 people mm-hmm. who, who produce amazing work and never cause and an issue. Yeah, and don't get sued. Um, And how easy it is for them to let like a an executive go who has proven themselves to make money for the company yeah. and then turn around and look at this. You've got bad people doing bad things and causing major debt. Yeah. That it's, is like a no-brainer to me. Get rid of them. <laughs> it's like you can't justify it. They need a consultant to come in and do the firing for them, I guess. Like Something. what is going on? The argument, you know, like I just said, it's hard to recruit officers or whatever. But is it worth keeping that one guy on? No. Who Who's like getting a stamp card of lawsuits? And he's just learning he's invincible. Exactly. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. Exactly. And no one cares. That's a great point. People can die. You can be a raging racist. No one cares. 
Yeah, I can like, shoot whoever I want fuck? and I'll get away with it. Yeah, like consequences for stealing a candy bar could result in your death. Yep. Like this, what a world we live in. <laughs> Isn't it nice? On top of that, just imagine what our society as a whole could do with an extra $3 billion a decade. That money could go to teacher pay or healthcare or houselessness, providing food in general, mm -hmm. which uh, it breaks down to be about $320 million a year that could be put to better use than, you know, sorry for killing your loved one. We could probably manage without police if we had everyone fed and home and housed. I think we could do it. Yeah. That's the point of abolitionists is to say it's not about having chaos. It's about community care. It's about having food pantries and providing housing and having $320 million to put I mean, there's always going to be bad seeds that are going to need Absolutely. the criminal justice and system. And people are going to break into homes and people are going to attack people and people are going to kill people. But so maybe you do need that kind of Maybe it's time we do some A-B testing on this and each state can... Try something new and yeah. see who prevails. The world according to Emily. <laughs> that and four-day work weeks. <laughs> Another lesson from Rankin's Academy report is that officers, especially ones coming from the military, should be screened for PTSD and other mental health issues and be given treatment. All veterans deserve to be cared for, especially if they're going to be given deadly weapons. There were now three former military well-trained officers on the scene with Manny. With Rankin's arrival, the protocol would suggest he should have checked for signs of excited delirium, especially since Manny had been tased three times. Excited delirium is defined as a medical emergency categorized by agitation, aggression, acute distress, and sudden death, often in pre-hospital settings. If a subject is believed to be suffering from EXD, officers should take care to ensure their subject can breathe and that there is no obstruction or action that is inhibiting their ability to do so. The subject should not be facing down and there should be no pressure on their neck or throat. When you are researching these, did you come into any statistics on how many of these scenarios do the officers end up taking life-saving measures? I didn't see a specific number, but speaking just for myself and working in school settings, I had to have like first aid and CPR and all that stuff. So I would be pretty shocked if police were able to not have kind of some of that basic training. Yeah, I'm just wondering, do we see the amount of times it's attempted go down because like EMTs get to the scene? Oh, right. In these scenarios or do they and do they not do it at all? Do they actually do they snap out of what the, I whatever think that's they're a doing? lot of this case. And, and I'll get into those details uh, in a moment here. And I think it's a lot of that. I think it's sucked into the moment and the adrenaline and then it's enemy against me and I'm on the defense. And yeah. that's it. Is there a name for that? I don't know. I mean, maybe that mental condition black is part of it where it's I'm scared and I have to stop this threat. Yeah. I'm I, not sure you're probably right. But then there's is. also the like multiple people and they, you know, they like I brought this up before they play off each other exactly. and they get ramped up and then it's like you've gone too far. Well, and trusting your partner or not even just your partner, but your coworker. Like I've been called to many a room and I run in and within two seconds, I have to assess what's going on. And I mm -hmm. hop into action on behalf of my coworker. Assuming they're I'm in the right. Exactly. I am trusting that they were in a situation that led yep. to that required this level of restraint. That popped in my head, too. It's like, what do you do when you enter that scene? Yeah. You have to quickly assess. And you're assuming 
these police officer coworkers of yours had every right to take a, a measure like that. Right. And if they're piled on, you don't really walk up and go, okay, guys, what's going on? I, I've done that as well. You walk in and it's kind of getting heated and you do some crosstalk with your coworker to be like, okay, what's the situation? But not when you're in it. You, you kind of can't. And so if you're walking up and you've got two guys on one guy's back, it's you, you have to just assume, oh, okay, he must have been doing something. He must be dangerous. I'm on their side. I'll do whatever they're doing. And also they all have military background, which I think also requires some sort of first aid or, yeah, yeah, it does. you know, so they've had it at some point. I know they've had it. The question is, do they put it to use when they see they've gone too far with someone oh, or yeah. do they, does somebody else do that cleanup? Yeah, I, I would think the latter that they just, yeah, they get lost in that moment. Rankin instead did not evaluate Manny or ask what was going on. He acted completely opposite of his training, applying pressure on Manny's back while he was in the prone position on his stomach. The prone position is with your limbs extended, kind of like how you would lay to make a snow angel. Burbank was on Manny's back. Collins had his legs held down. Rankin put his right knee on Manny's spine on his lower back before he kicked out his legs so he was sitting on him. At that point, Rankin would later report he heard Manny, quote, making really strange animal grunting noises before hearing him say, in a calm, normal voice, that he could not breathe. Rankin responded, quote, If you're talking to me, you can breathe just fine. Reading this part of the report got me really heated. I know, hard to believe. A part of every version of restraint training that I've done is you do it with your team to practice. Throughout the years, I have choked bosses. I have acted out biting supervisors. I've been held by multiple adults. I know how suffocating it can feel when you're just trying to move to get comfortable but it can appear like you're trying to escalate things. Cops get their training, and maybe they act out some of it, but obviously when I bit my coworker, it wasn't hard, and I didn't try to choke anyone out, but maybe that's what these guys need. They need a training where they're matched up against two larger coworkers who are in all of their military garb while they're just in street clothes. Then they could get shoved into the pavement and tased just to have a basic idea of what that would feel like. I do think they do sometimes. I know people have to do the taser. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I have seen that they do the taser. But, you know, just more of the reenactment, I guess, of like the things they actually do, not just like step by step, so that maybe they can have some empathy in those moments. I know that's a lot to ask, but maybe it would help. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. 
Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. At that point, Manny got quiet. Rankin moved his knee from the lower back to Manny's right shoulder, causing Manny to, quote, violently thrash. So he moved his knee back to the spine. As Manny's pleas of, can't breathe, sir, please, sir, continued, the three armed officers handcuffed Manny. They then watched and waited as backup arrived. Within 11 minutes of the mic click, 20 officers were on the scene. One of the arriving officers was asked by one of the men on Manny to go grab a hobble. A hobble is a nylon strap used for leg restraints. The strap was then wound around his legs before being wrapped around the handcuffs. Manny was now hogtied, his taser-prong-filled chest now the main point of pressure on his body. 21 seconds after applying the hobble, another officer, Sergeant Michael Lim, radioed that responding officers could slow their arrival to the scene. As he made that call, the radio was picking up background sounds, one of which was Manny's last words, can't breathe, can't breathe. Another officer at the scene was 19-year veteran with the Pierce County Sheriff, Lieutenant Anthony Messino. Speaking about what he witnessed, he said, quote, Once that hobble was on, he went quiet. He did not move. He then heard Manny snoring, or what is called agonal breathing, which is defined as an abnormal breathing pattern originating from lower brainstem neurons and characterized by labored breaths, gasping, and often myoculinous. So they just thought he was asleep? Yeah. In what world? Does somebody fall asleep? <laughs> yeah, or just assumed he, I don't know if they just assumed he just stopped, like stopped resisting. That's I don't know. the silliest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. So uh, it also has twitching and grunting. When someone is dying and they have the agonal breathing, their last breaths, that's what I heard. Officer Messiah Ford arrived and he had the men roll Manny onto his side in a recovery position and the probes were finally taken out of his chest. His body was swept for weapons. None were found. It was noted at this time Manny was hot, sweating profusely, and his face was bleeding, all signs of excited delirium. He was eventually rolled back on his stomach. Someone among the group finally acknowledged that EXD was taking place, and the fire department was dispatched by Sergeant Kim, who said, quote, Yeah, go ahead and start with fire. Check him out. After all of those officers arrived, after hearing Manny call out that he was struggling to breathe, and having seen his breathing look labored, after tasing him three times and punching him in the face, no one called for any additional medical support. Finally, the paramedics were called, but when they were dispatched, Manny's complaints of breathing issues were not shared. They also didn't inform dispatchers that Manny was experiencing agonal breathing and EXD, both common conditions post-taser. Because those things weren't shared and Lim was so casual, the call was not listed as a priority. It wasn't until seven minutes later the call's severity was heightened. Officer Ford, now assisting in holding legs, told Manny that medics were on their way in an effort to calm him. At 11.27, yet another officer arrived, Armando Farinas. 
It isn't stated in the charges if he was carrying or was asked to bring out a spit hood. But the officers complained of Manny spitting near them, and because he was familiar with the hood, Farinas volunteered to place it on Manny. A spit hood is used to protect people from bodily fluids. If someone is spitting, biting, vomiting, and so forth, you can place the hood on their head to protect yourself from germs, diseases, and the overall yuck factor. From the bridge of the nose up, the hood is mesh so the wearer can still see. From there down, it is made of a thicker material which blocks the fluids. However, the use of spit hoods is dangerous, traumatizing, and comes with important instructions. The one that was placed on Manny said it should not be used on anyone who is having trouble breathing. They should be used only as a last resort and only when fluids are being weaponized. They are so unpleasant, I've only seen them used on one occasion, and even then it was inappropriate. Further investigation showed that 26-year-old, three-year TPD veteran Farinas did use the hood according to TPD standards, which was that he didn't use it to display authority. He was cleared as neither Burbank or Collins informed him that Manny had been complaining of breathing issues. After the incident, he was on leave and returned to the force soon after. Even though he wasn't informed of Manny's words, he could have seen that he was struggling, so he didn't comply with the instructions on the hood, one of which was, quote, Improper use may result in serious injury or death due to asphyxiation, suffocation, or drowning in one's own fluids. When talking about getting Manny on his side, Rankin said, quote, Because from medical training experience, that's the best position to put someone in. It's like the recovery position is what they call it. Rankin took Manny's pulse. He was surprised at how low it was. Manny's body then, quote, violently started thrashing all over again. Someone then gave the instruction to roll Manny back to his stomach. Even though EXD had been mentioned, no one followed a single protocol. He was on his stomach, and they once again applied pressure to his back to hold him down. A hogtied, delirious man needed to be held down. Rankin put his right knee around Manny's shoulder, put the other in the middle of his back, once again on his spine. They waited for medical personnel to arrive, and while they did so, they stayed in that position. They stayed on his back for as little as six minutes, as long as nine, awaiting non-alarmed, due to lack of information, fire and medical. At 11.34, the fire department finally arrived. Manny's initial condition was recorded as unconscious and unresponsive, with a weak and slow pulse. Officer Ford was the first to approach them, informing them of Manny's deteriorating respiratory drive. Manny did not appear to be breathing in a way that could sustain life. His pupils were fixed and dilated. Paramedics knew Manny had a low chance of survival, but that chance would be a zero if they couldn't get help to him right away. Telling Timothy Rankin that Manny would need an IV or he was going to code, the paramedic asked Rankin to remove all of the restraints, the handcuffs, the hobble, the spit hood. Rankin refused, saying he didn't want to because he didn't want to get him out of cuffs in case he starts fighting again. With insistence from the medical personnel, the restraints were eventually removed. With the restraints finally out of their way, medics were able to administer an IV and a respirator bag was used before they initiated CPR. Laying in the street, next to his donuts and water, Manuel Manny Ellis was officially declared dead. Knowing everyone would be looking to them to find out exactly what led to the torture death of this man, Burbank and Collins started to tell officers at the scene that Manny randomly attacked them. Other officers would later say they heard Collins and Burbank saying things like they saw him going after a car, that he was passing through the intersection before approaching their car and attacking their car, punching their, punch their window. So they got out and he attacked them. 
Other officers heard versions that included another vehicle Manny was trying to get into, and they had used the door to block him, and then the fight was on. In yet another version, Manny was a passenger in a car that pulled up to the cruiser when he, out of nowhere, punched the cruiser's window. When he did, they got out to talk to him, and he came after them, fists swinging, hitting each officer multiple times, even landing shots in their faces. As they attempted to arrest him for the random attack, it escalated. He started punching and kicking them. These officers didn't have body cams, so thank goodness for the witnesses that thought to record them and the doorbell that did the same. Otherwise, that could have been the story, and no one would have believed the family when they would plead, saying that their beloved Manny would never do such a thing. The Pierce County Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Clark performed the autopsy. Manny's death was ruled hypoxia, or lack of oxygen, not necessarily suffocation, but he was, because of the handcuffs, hobble, and spit hood, unable to get enough oxygen, especially once the hood was placed. The pressure on his back against that of the pavement limited how much air he could get. Checking the spit hood, the doctor found the inside to be coated with mucus and blood. He also determined Manny's death was a homicide. Looking over Manny's heart monitor readings for the medics took the night of his death, Dr. Clark insisted it was the restraint that caused his death, not an underlying medical condition. And even though there was a presence of methamphetamine in Manny's blood at the time, it did not cause his death, though it may have been a contributing factor. The actions of Collins and Burbank did not meet the Tacoma Police Department standard of officers using force equal to the situation and instead used deadly force. Nor did they follow the protocol of calling for medical assistance or checking for injuries. In expert opinions, medical help should have been called for as soon as Manny was handcuffed. It was clear from his complaints of being unable to breathe he needed help. On top of that, Manny was tasered in the chest, which is dangerous in its own right, and they should have known to call for help and proceed under the rules of excited delirium. I didn't hear. When you first started talking about the excited delirium syndrome, did you talk about like the history of it at all? Or like, did you mention it before? Like what it is and like where it comes from? Uh, I gave a definition and what and how it usually happens with being tased and uh, in these kind of situations. Well, I was just curious if it was because I, I just Googled it while we were while you, I was listening. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's like a it's a racist. I don't have I don't have we, we probably we might need to like add something to the end of the episode because the term itself is rooted in racism. Did you know that? I did, did not. That? OK, could. What does it say? This is from uh, a website called Physicians for Human Rights. I think it's a real deal. I'm just going to read directly from the yeah. article for a minute. When did the term excited delirium evolve to describe a distinct type of delirium? How did the corresponding term become a go-to diagnosis for medical examiners and coroners to use in explaining deaths in police custody? This report traces the evolution of the term from when it appears to have been first coined in the 1980s to the present. Uh, and so there was a study. Let's see. So it says, this report concludes that the term excited delirium cannot be disentangled from its racist and unscientific origins. Dr. Charles Wetley, who first coined the term with Dr. David Fishbane in case reports on cocaine intoxication in 1981 oh. and 1985, soon after extended this theory to explain how more than 12 black women in Miami who were presumed sex workers died after consuming small amounts of cocaine. Uh, and this is a quote from, from their initial report, these racists. Quote, for some reason, the male of the species becomes psychotic and the female of the species dies in relation to sex, he postulated. As to why all the women dying were black, he further speculated without any scientific basis, we might find out that cocaine in combination with a certain blood type, more common in blacks, is lethal. 
Yikes. So is there wow. another term that can be used instead? Well, no. From what I read, that's that was in the court documents, like as if that's in Tacoma PD's. And it looks like it is just widely used, completely misunderstood and not. And it's also not. Well, it's also not clearly defined either. It's like a, it's like a very it's a very loose set of. And, and I did find it interesting, too, how it. it's like, oh, it's agitation, it's aggression, it's this, that. And it's yeah. like. Oh, so someone's worked up and you can just say, oh, they have excited delirium. But that would make sense that they used it to qualify specifically for black people to be like, oh, they're just having some excited delirium. They're worked up and crazy. They're wild. Yeah. Yeah. How fascinating. Well, so, thank you for looking that up. I didn't even think about it because I just welcome. read it in the court document. So yeah, I just figured that just was like, something they had yeah. in the police department. And I, of course, should have known it was rooted well, I mean, in something. A that, lot of things that still exist are, are yeah. having a hard time untangling from their yeah. origin. Well, that's very interesting. Well, thank you, Josh. I You're appreciate welcome. that uh, extra bit of knowledge. Listeners, careful with that term. That's right. There was no attempt to de-escalate. Even with Manny hogtied and non-responsive, pressure was applied, none of which should have happened. Again, thank goodness for those cameras. They helped bring charges to the men involved when it was quickly realized there was no way their version of events was what took place. Additionally, and thankfully, there were others at the scene who were not willing to cover up the misdeeds of their co-workers. Two officers interviewed after the incident claimed that Timothy's version of Manny thrashing around was not true. In fact, they said Manny was quiet and unmoving as soon as the hobble was applied. Thank goodness. You know, yeah. we always hear so many stories. The people yeah, where they're all in up. with each other. Yeah. Luckily, they were not. Uh, the charges are as follows. Timothy Rankin, the third officer to arrive, has been charged with manslaughter as he recklessly caused Manny's death when, after hearing him say he could not breathe, Rankin continued to hold him in the prone position and applied pressure to his back. He failed to render or call urgent medical aid as Manny exhibited signs of a medical crisis. He failed to alert other officers to Manny's medical distress and failed to stop another officer from applying a spit hood or removing it once it was placed. Officers Burbank and Collins have been handed multiple charges that stem from the following actions. Assault in the third degree from acting with criminal negligence and causing bodily harm to Manny by means of a weapon or other instrument or thing likely to produce bodily harm and or causing bodily harm to Manny accompanied by sustained pain that extends for a period sufficient to cause considerable suffering. Assault in the second degree from acting as either principals or accomplices. The pair tackled and struck Manny multiple times, applied an LVNR, and shot him with the taser three times, all without justification. They intentionally assaulted Manny and thereby recklessly inflicted substantial bodily harm and assaulting him with the intent to commit unlawful imprisonment and via strangulation or suffocation. An unlawful imprisonment charge from knowingly restraining without justification and felony murder in the second degree, which is a class A felony. A person is charged with second degree murder if the intent to cause the death of another person without premeditation or commits a separate felony, such as assault, and in the course of doing so causes the death of another person. Have they since uncovered what happened? Like, what did Manny say that got them out of the car in the first place? I've not seen anything about the exchange, but I think it's, no pun intended, black and white. Yeah, I just I, I can't imagine walking by. There's anything he could have said. I think a window was down. They just finished a a traffic stop and a window was down and he maybe said something like where are you off to? What are you doing? You live in this neighborhood, just typical police small talk and that was and they just decided 
that. It's just, I can't fathom anything it, he would like, have said, even if it was bad. Yeah, literally, there's nothing he could say that would explain that behavior. <laughs> yeah. He could say, I'm going to kill you with these donuts. And that doesn't explain it because, like, that's not a threat. But, uh, like, even the way he opened the door and, like, accosted yeah. him that way was so. He, yeah, as he, it was as he was walking away and took him out. It'll be interesting to hear what they say. The charges are a huge step in the right direction, but it didn't happen without some hiccups. It took months for all of the videos to be turned over and compiled, some of which had been kept from Manny's family. One would guess that happened because the police union and representative claimed that there was never any wrongdoing, the taser was not used, and they did not do a chokehold. The attorney for Ellis's family says it also contradicts statements the Pierce County Sheriff's Department has made. On June 4th, spokesman Ed Troyer flat out denied that Ellis was tased. They didn't use pepper spray. They didn't use a taser. But an officer is clearly seen using a taser in the video, and a medical examiner's report confirmed that. James Bible, an attorney for the Ellis family, says the video is damning. Ultimately, what we see here is is an absolute disregard for human life and then uh, the indignity of the cover-up following it. It took until May of 2021 for the charges to be brought. Of course, there were protests and demands for actions that helped push for the officers to be held accountable. On the day the charges were announced, Washington matched how many officers it had charged in the previous 40 years combined. Three other officers at the scene, Messiah Ford, Armando Farinas, and Detective Sergeant Gary Sanders, who all aided in subduing Manny, were not and won't be charged. Perhaps the lack of cameras means there wasn't enough evidence, or maybe they just hopped on the bandwagon when they arrived. Or maybe they, you know, didn't know the extent of what happened exactly. previous to arriving. Yeah, that's what I would assume, is that they didn't, they just took the officer's word and they didn't realize how serious right. it was. Because if you start questioning the op, like, that's not something that they want happening yeah. either. Oof. And from everything I read, it basically looks like they didn't have all of the information they needed to really properly address the scene. So they may have been more willing to cooperate with the investigation for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you duped me into killing this guy. This was the second time homicide charges were filed against a police officer since Washington voters passed Initiative 940 in 2018. That initiative updated the terms of deadly force and removed the standard of malice, allowing for more opportunities for juries to determine if the use of deadly force was appropriate. The initiative also required officers to have first aid, mental health crisis, and de-escalation training. You may be thinking, this all happened almost three years ago now. What was the outcome of the trial? Well, there hasn't been one yet. It has been moved and bumped several times. Most recently, it was supposed to begin at the end of January of this year. It has since been moved to September. The delay stems from Officer Farinas. First, documents surrounding the internal investigation were argued about in court with requests for fully unredacted copies to be available. They were redacted in the first place as there were concerns Farinas would face consequences of his own should his statements be released. The case is now going to the state Supreme Court where they are trying to work out protection for the officer as he was forced to comply with the internal investigation regarding retaining officers Burbank, Collins, and Rankin on the force. If Farinas hadn't complied, he would have been fired. But if he admitted in that interview that he did something against protocol, there are concerns that he would face legal ramifications. But there is a legal standard that says compelled statements from officers can't be used against them should there be criminal proceedings surrounding the event. Yeah, that 
That seems odd. I, like, I per- personally don't think any of it should be redacted. Yeah. Because of what they do. Yeah. It should all be Agreed. visible. And if he didn't go through po- protocol, then there should be consequences, whether or not it was in an interview. And the consequences should be equal to the discretion as well. Exactly. Like, if it's just something minor. Yeah, if it's like he admits to holding down Manny's legs, but he also says he wasn't given the, all the information. Right, like that should be you, something you can kind of say, I get that, that they didn't tell you, but also couldn't you hear his breathing? But also didn't you know? So there's there's some outcry uh, still, you know, from family and, and protesters as far as just like, why aren't all the officers that had something to do with it that didn't call for medical support on on some level being held accountable? So it'll be interesting to see. I think it's going to the state Supreme Court now. Monet Carter Mixon, Manny's sister, said, quote, it would be extremely hard not to convict based off of the evidence, witnesses' statements, video, and the officer's own statements. The Tacoma Police Mafia, I mean union, has said that the charges against the lying officers are, quote, politically motivated witch hunt. We look forward to trial. An unbiased jury will find that the officers broke no laws and, in fact, acted in accordance with the law. What? Their training and Tacoma Police Department policies. An unbiased jury will not allow these fine public servants to be sacrificed at the altar of public sentiment. I'm sorry, who was that quote? That was the head of the Tacoma Police Union. How? Why are they? Why are they standing behind these people? Like, do yourself a fucking favor, throw them under the bus and make yourselves look a little bit better. Yeah. Punish them. Yeah. What the hell? I am baffled. Yeah. It's all part of the, the whole like, thing. Win, win some favor with the public. Get rid of the bad seeds. But if you're all doing things, you're all sneaking money or you're all being racist. I don't or think all they're whatever. all. I don't think. But if you have enough of them and it's like, well, I'll protect you if you protect me on this thing and you look out for me for that and I'll watch out for you for that. You know, there are good people in there. There's it's it can't be. I can't be that negative. Like it can't be that many people are worse than the good ones. Like That's so fucked up. I don't I. <laughs> I'm at this crossroads in my brain. I know. I can hear it. If you ever want to throw your computer out the window, just watch any police union rep speak. And it's, we're perfect. This person had it coming. We did nothing wrong. This person's great. It just makes you look even worse when it's like proven in court with video that you are indeed wrong. Yeah. Jesus. To look at, to watch that video and to have no one else say anything even close to what the cops say had happened, and to still stand there and say that is just deplorable. Why is it that everyone who cries witch hunt would have been a witch hunter? <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely no correct. Shit. No truer words have been spoken. <laughs> it's transference, baby. Oh, man. <laughs> you really would. <laughs> You may recall last week I spoke about the training video that leaked showing a supervising officer saying it's cheaper to kill someone than to maim them because with a killing, you can get the family to be quiet for just three million bucks. Well, here's a perfect example of that in action. Manny's family sued Pierce County, Washington and reached a settlement of just over four million dollars. Luckily, they are not staying quiet. As for the officers, they were arrested and put in jail. On our blog, you can see their mugshots as they wear their lovely orange jumpsuits. While most would have hoped they would have had to wait in their cell for their trial, again, especially since it's been taking three years now, 
they were actually all able to bail out on a $100,000 bond or $10,000 each. Was that paid by the union? Well, they didn't bail themselves out. And this, Emily, you'll love, this was one of those moments where I'm wrapping up the story and then stumble upon a whole nother secondary story. And we're going to talk about Josh Harris, who owns Tacoma's Integrity Construction. And he's known as a business owner who helps out in the community. From time to time, he's appeared on the news after donating a car to someone needing one to get to work or giving toys to kids, supporting a family who lost everything in a fire, giving tools to a carpenter who had his stolen. He even served on the Crime Stoppers board of Pierce County. And in about five minutes, that will be very upsetting and have you wondering what tips or cases he may be messed with. No. Besides his philanthropy work, he was known for his actual work, construction. He has owned his company, Integrity Construction, for over 20 years. He was a man who went from being literally bankrupt to refurbishing minor league baseball's Cheney Stadium and even doing work in Russell Wilson and Sierra's mansion. The payment of the bond was likely a publicity stunt as part of his 2022 run for the Pierce County Council. The 47-year-old ran on the platform of Law & Order, and his donation got him a lot of publicity. Publicity, though, brings new interest in your life, and it was soon uncovered that the do-gooder had a criminal history of his own. It was discovered that for six months from November 2001 to the following April, he had been given 17 paychecks from a business he was doing maintenance for. The problem with those checks, though, was that he altered the numbers, increasing his overall earnings by about $24,000. Whoopsie. Clerical error. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Oh, sorry. Isn't that how you signed a check with a zero? When this misdeed was discovered and he was questioned, Josh Harris denied doing it at first, but he eventually admitted to and pled guilty to felony and misdemeanor charges of theft. His reasoning for stealing from his employer, he felt he had been underpaid for the work he had done. (laughs) So I'll just make up for it myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In a phone interview, Josh said, I openly admitted I took the checks to pay myself back. I'm not embarrassed of it. I did no jail time. I did no prison time. How on earth can you be found guilty of two counts of theft, one being a felony, and not do jail time? Simple. You get sentenced to 30 days of jail time, which you are allowed to serve as home detention. Convenient. In addition to that pathetically light sentence, Mr. Law & Order also had to do 240 hours of community service and be supervised, including wearing an ankle bracelet for a year. With only five days left of that sentence, he couldn't take it anymore, and he cut his monitor off. (laughs) An agent went to his house but couldn't find Josh. They did, however, find the monitor on his bedroom floor. As a punishment, he received no consequences whatsoever. A few years later, in 2007, Josh Harris took his jet skis and the trailer they were on to a relative's house to store them in a field. Not long after doing that, Josh Harris filed a police report that his jet skis and trailer had been stolen earning an insurance payout of $15,000. It was a year later when officers stumbled upon the jet skis. Finding their placement in the field odd, they asked the landowners about them. Oh yeah, their relative Josh left them there. When questioned, Josh certainly hadn't hidden them there. What had happened was that they were stolen, but he found them like a month later in an industrial area. Since there'd be no point in trying to get the insurance paid back or to clear things up with the police, he simply moved them to that field for storage. He said, quote, I simply forgot to call my insurance company. It was not even a mistake. 
Once again, he was hit with charges of felony theft, misdemeanor theft, and false claims. He eventually pled guilty to the misdemeanors, which were in regard to hiding the property and attempting to make false claims. And once again, he was given a year of probation, 28 days of home detention, and a suspended one-year jail sentence, earning two days of credit for the time spent in jail. I do not believe the other 363 days were ever served. He had said not calling wasn't even a mistake. He then said, I have nothing to hide about it. You make mistakes. You own them. You fix them. Right around the time he was not elected to the county council, he was involved in a shooting. Again, out in a field while looking for stolen property. I'm not sure if that means property he stole and was hiding or his own stuff. He came across someone stealing a car. The cops were in the area, and from around the corner, their body cameras caught the sounds of gunfire. Josh would later say the driver started to come towards him. Instead of just moving off the road, he shot at the driver, striking them. Witnesses agreed with Josh's story, and the driver was charged with automobile theft. Josh was not charged. (laughs) Josh Harris's story is one of white privilege. Manny Ellis was walking home after playing music at church and getting a snack when he was brutally tortured and killed simply for existing and being black. Josh Harris can lie, cheat, steal, and attempt to kill. He has yet to complete a single sentence handed down by the courts. Why does he get so many chances to prove that he won't do the right thing, and Manny never got a single chance? Side note, Josh's brother Ben is an officer who is also a serving member of Tacoma Pierce County Chaplaincy. That may have played a part in his motivation to pay the bail. We will have to wait until this fall, hopefully, to see officers Burbank, Collins, and Rankin go to trial. Based on everything I've seen and read about this case, I can only say I hope they receive the same kind of punishment they doled out so carelessly. You think it's bad to be a pedophile in the clink? Imagine being a murderous cop. I don't think it'll go too well for them. Their perceived untouchability combined with their PTSD from combat made for a deadly combination, one they will now have to face consequences for. These incidents of police violence cause traumatic ripples that affect an untold number of Americans who then have to live without their loved one and live with the ramifications of such pain. Grief can be a killer. Among black women, 50,000 die annually from heart disease. Stroke, according to the American Heart Association, is also a leading cause of death. 58% of black women over the age of 20 have high blood pressure, yet only 20% have it maintained. It isn't known why black people are affected at such high rates, although there is research being conducted surrounding a possible gene that could be to blame. Combining a genetic disposition, then the loss of a husband or a child to the police, and the grief, trauma, publicity, scrutiny, and pain that that would cause, it isn't hard to understand why so many, especially young black women, are dying from heart failure. One such woman was Amber Carr, sister to Antiana Jefferson. You may remember Antiana Jefferson's story. She was playing video games with her nephew, Amber's young son, Zion, in October of 2019 when a Fort Worth officer shot her through a window. A neighbor had called to say Antiana's front door was open. Officers swarmed the house but did not call out that they were police. Her attention being drawn outside, Antiana looked out the window and was immediately shot by Aaron Dean. That night, Amber lost her sister. She nearly lost her son. Her son experienced a horrible life-altering trauma. Her sister didn't just die, she was murdered. And she wasn't just murdered, she was killed by a police officer, making it a worldwide story. With all of that on her heart, it's no surprise it gave out at just 33 years old this last January. Zion, now 12 years old, and his sibling Zayden have lost their aunt and their mother. On a good note, Aaron Dean is currently serving his just-shy-of-12-year sentence for manslaughter. 
The generational trauma of losing black people, especially men, to police violence is nearly incomprehensible. How can we continue to ask an entire population of people to go about their day while carrying the grief of their dead or wrongfully convicted loved one, the trauma of witnessing police violence, and the fear that it could happen to them at any second? I don't know what the next steps are to fix this. There are times it seems too powerful and that they, the cops, and the system they were built on will always win. But changes need to happen. Black men deserve to grow old. If you feel helpless and you want to do something, you can help the families affected by today's stories. Zion and Zayden are close to having enough money to buy a home. You can help them by searching GoFundMe for A Home for Zion and Zayden. There are also GoFundMes set up for everyone else whose story I shared. You can find them by searching for Family of Manuel Tortuguita Paez Tehran, Tyree Nichols Memorial Fund, In Loving Memory of Keenan Anderson, In Memory of Oscar Leon Sanchez, Justice for Takara Smith, and In Honor of Manuel Ellis. And we'll include those in the show notes, too. Ugh, those ones are hard. Yeah. It's hard because we and I don't want to rehash everything we said in the last episode, but it's hard because we don't know the answer to fix it. Exactly. But we know it's so broken and it's really sad that it feels like we're going nowhere. It does feel like and and this is why I do the shows. It's not to exploit what happened to them. It's not to be graphic for the sake of it. It's to understand the magnitude of it, because the first step is to have everyone on the same team. Recognize. Yeah. Before we can. Before we can move forward with a plan, if we're not even on the same page of the fact that there needs to be a change. But I don't think that's ever going to happen because of racism. Yeah. But but in, I think in, maybe if enough people do, maybe yeah. if enough people to where it's a majority or it's the people that are in charge, you know, it's like this is why, you know, at elections, it's always like the big race. But that's why it's so important to look at your local races because it's like well yeah. who's on your city council and who's deciding what's going on with the cops and what's and, their background yeah and where's their money stored? exactly where's the money gonna go that i pay my city i would like it to go to education so that's why you have to look at those people and be like okay who's gonna who's gonna do that with the money instead of buy a new building for the cops or something it, it starts with having these conversations, even the difficult ones. Uh, you know, maybe you have someone in your life that responds to statistics. Maybe they respond to videos. Maybe something like this episode. I don't know. So I was listening through editing last week's episode. And it's just I feel like it's a nice example of two people who have differing. We agree for the most part on some of this, but we have differing opinions on other aspects. Mm-hmm. But we can sit and talk. Like we're yeah. just discussing it. Well, and yeah, we're because we both we both recognize there's a major issue. Yeah, and it's going to take a lot of big brain people to solve it. Yeah, um, but we can't keep ducking our heads in the sand and saying there isn't a problem. Yeah. So, I I, I hope this helps anyone that maybe doesn't understand police brutality or where it comes from, or yeah, or, or the, helps by donating to the families. Those L.A. numbers, though, I mean, listen to those back again, and yeah. I feel like. That tells you all you need to hear. Yeah. I'm, those are insane. Yeah. Well, and hopefully in September or October, I'll be back with an update of how the trial went. Or maybe there won't be a trial and they'll just take a plea deal because it seems ludicrous yeah, that they would jail. even try to fight it. So just go to jail. You guys are garbage.
Uh, what time do you need to be out the door, ma'am? Um, is er- underneath uh, noon would be great. Okay. Um, but noon is fine. That sounds like a bad book title. Underneath noon. Underneath yeah. noon. <laughs> I like. I when it came out, I'm like, that feels right. Welcome back to Underneath Noon. I have been reading a lot of Bridgerton books lately, so that I've done the fourth one already. Quit blaming your British literature for your weird speaking. That is not literature, I'll tell you. <laughs> but I do like it. Is it as horny as I've heard the Netflix series is? Yeah, yeah it's a little bit horny. Yeah, for sure. But like in, a, in a delightful way, not, not overwhelming. I don't like delightful horniness. I like <laughs> scary well, horniness. If you like that, I can recommend you some books. I've been looking to get into written smut. I will give you some. I would love that. It is bonkers. First of all, there's a lot of rapey vibes because she's asleep and people are sexing her. But then she awakens to be with this dude and they're talking about uh, pony play. Like there's a whole (gasps) stable of pony boys. And this is like casually introduced. Like this is normal book stuff. Wow. Where they have butt plugs that have like a horse tail. Ponies, you say? Were they pony men or just they just dressed like... Yeah, they're people. So pony play is people pretending to be ponies. There's like leather Uh, masks you can get where it has like snouts. Oh, I I, I just didn't know if they were mythological like... Oh, no, I've been into that. I'd have been into like some (laughs) centaur shit. Yeah. Well, if you like centaur shit, I actually have uh, read an erotic Bigfoot novel. Oh, oh, I don't know about that. It was gross. (laughs) (laughs) Erotic Bigfoot. Interesting. He's got a big one. Enough erotica talk? Mm, erotica. Is it? Erotica. I say, nay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to this. Okay, here we go. Nice and relaxed. Hey. Okay. Last. <clears throat> great, oh, start. great start. <laughs> <laughs> Pony play. <laughs> I'm so distracted and horny. Where's my whip? I believe. I believe- I believe. <laughs> I believe that's a riding crop. Oh, it was. Thank there you. There you go. Not that's even better. It's for little tiny spankies. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's more appropriate for the pony play. Not that I'm an expert. I mean, I've only read a, a series on it. <laughs> Fuck. I had to finish the series so that Amber wouldn't be disappointed in me. I'm a little bit more of the Bridgerton type, the that's romantic right. nipple play. You the know? jizzing into blankets. Oh, <laughs> romantic nipple play. <laughs> Under noon, a diary of my nipple play. <laughs> a diary of nipple play. <laughs> that is a fun, that is a good premise for a for an erotic novel, I Thank think. Thank you. Pony play? Underneath noon, uh, a novel of <laughs> erotic nipple play. I think I could probably <laughs> write, write that shit. Maybe I'll give it a try and please give do. it to you to read. And oh, I would love to. I yeah. would love to. Oh, read it aloud to the audience? <laughs> no, you, Patreon you, special. You judge it. You oh, say it, whether it's good or not. Yeah, how many boners up I give it? Yeah. They're always out. That's true. I don't know what's happened to these things. <laughs> you got Jennifer Aniston perma nips. Oh, all right. <laughs> I didn't know what to say to that. <laughs> Me either. I was just thinking about them. Well, it's true. I do. I have Josh McCullough perma nips. Thank <laughs> I, you. I, when I was a little younger, I had Jennifer Aniston perma nips as oh, well. Oh, congratulations. But I'm old. <laughs> Why do I have it? Have you looked into that? Male erect nipples? I don't want to. <laughs> well, I guess like research or something. Over You'd have to noon. add something. <laughs> Male erect nipples. <laughs> A the sequel. sequel. <laughs> I can't wait to get writing. I'll just make a podcast about trying to write an erotic novel. Please. That could be funny. 
We ain't going nowhere. It ain't noon yet. <laughs> I know. We're still, We're still well under noon. noon. <laughs> Took out a little chunk of my knee. Uncork. <laughs> it's like those baby knees, but mine has a little mouth. Like a little biscuit knee? Like yeah, you a know little how, folded in. You know how people have like knees Looks look like, like baby? Yeah. <laughs> like a baby from uh Wait, who's did we the just haunting? See, didn't we just see a celebrity that had a we did. a knee that had a face in it? <laughs> yes. I don't who remember was who it was. It was like Megan Fox or something, something like that. Damn it. <laughs> it was a good one. I'll look up knee real, celebrity knee face. Real ultrasound looking knee. Or like uh image from Mars or the moon. <laughs> that face that's going, ah. You know. And you know what I'm talking about? Not exactly. Well, I'll send you, a, new? you send me that uh, Anne Rice erotic. I'll send you pictures <laughs> of the moon face or Mars face, whatever it is. I got to go, guys. They're just pumping people full of that caffeine drug. I'm telling you. Yeah. I was addicted to caffeine when I worked in the office. Not anymore. The day they installed it, it was like, have you guys seen the episode of The Office where they get the cappuccino machine and they all want to try the different, uh it's like the Nestle thing. Yeah. So the day they installed it, I kid you not, six of us were gathered around the guy installing it, cheering, clapping and going, who gets to try first? And I asked him like, "Uh, did you think you'd be this popular when you went into this job? Like we're and then every three o'clock for the rest of the week, we would all meet in the kitchen and try different flavors of things. Everyone was like. (laughs) caffeine <laughs> overload feeling sick but it was yeah. fun you know so it it's <laughs> it's team building That's and bonding right. it's free and you think you're getting a perk but yeah. really they did not give me a perk i got shit sleep and now that i'm off of it i'm a healthier person That's right i'm not going to tell anyone to not drink caffeine but i am your advocate for going caffeine free That's right anyway put that at the back <laughs> get back into your case <laughs> I mean, if you're like me, if you have high blood pressure and ear problems, you need to cut that shit out. Yeah. Okay. Caffeine makes your ears bad. Why do we have crystals in there? Always breaking down. They're like. What am I, an elf or something? (laughs) Shit. The kidney stone. Yeah. Right. Meniere's disease. Okay, I'm right. Meniere's. I was close enough. Thank God. This week. Yeah. Oh my, oh my God. God. Was that your game? Oh my God. You're so embarrassing. On volume. Oh, because he turned it up to say oh Meniere's. Oh, my God. And then he God. forgot to turn it down like an old man. Oh, my God. How embarrassing so for you. So embarrassing. <laughs> are you embarrassed? It's almost noon. <laughs> we are still under <laughs> oh, noon. No, we've got to be under noon. We have we 45 minutes. Noon. Don't change the subject. You're embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> you are shamed and your cheeks <laughs> are pink. Yeah. Shame. Uh, I am. Shame. I am ashamed. I'm so sorry. And it's such a silly game I'm playing, too. I feel, well, doubly embarrassed. Doubly what embarrassed. game is it? Is it like one of those games where you shave the girl's legs and you take Ew, her ear wax out? You're so what? Sick. You've seen those ads, right? No, that's what you get. That's your targeted ad. Oh, weirdo. my God. I hate them. <laughs> They always start out with like this girl covered in yeah. mud and gross looking with her boyfriend and he's looking at other girls so and gross. it's like, who, what? It's who does this crazy. appeal to? Yeah. I see a lot of ads about psoriasis. <laughs> so I guess I say that a bunch. <laughs> I do too. It's okay. Skin tags? Why does it have a clickbait about skin tags? The heck? I got to turn these cookies off. <laughs> I think it's from having too many cookies I got in the skin tags. Mm, I love them. <laughs> That's what they call me, Cookie Tags. That's your dancer name? Yeah. Dancer detective. Those are just my little cookie tags. (laughs) (laughs) So gross.
when Which he one? sniffed the the lady's yeast infection from underneath oh, her yeah. skin flap. <laughs> Uh-oh, Josh is dead. I can't see him, but I know he's dead. His head uh, is back in the chair. Uh-uh. <laughs> mouth is open. My mouth is wide open. <laughs> Reenacted by like slowly bringing his fingers to his nose. He's like, I don't know why I did it, but I did it. Whose arm? Who's, who's flap? Her anus prolapsed and he had to poke it so it would go back <laughs> in. Was it the same lady? Shut up. And he had to wash her. And That's the one that and he, he sniffed. And he put his fingers through her rolls and then smelled it. <laughs> Oh no, that's real. He's barfing. <laughs> okay, let's let's save that for Patreon. <laughs> oh my god! You know what? That may be us someday. Somebody may be sniffing our yeast infection. Someday, look at these rolls I got. Oh, Matt. <laughs> it, it was then when I knew he'd be my forever yeah. friend. He nasty. Just he just had to know. Sometimes you just gotta know. Yeah. But him telling the story is. Oh yeah, I'll ask him. I I can't even. I can't even picture him. I can't even picture or imagine him telling me the story. No, (laughs) I can't live through that. I'll have him do it when he comes over. No, no, no. Sounds like my babysitter from when I was a kid. If you're thirsty, drink out the hose. She was the worst. Yeah, that's awful. She would lock us outside. An old lady. uh, Basically, could have been. I don't. Honestly, she has no age in my memory, but she was horrible. She would lock you outside. She'd lock us outside in the hot summer with. And we could only come in at lunchtime once. I mean, we would pee in the in the lawn. That's how long we were out there. But she was your babysitter. Yeah. Like that was. She also broke one of the kids' arms and got her <sighs> license taken away. So it was an abusive situation. It was not fun. No good memories there. Yikes! How long did you have to go to her? Until I stopped answering the door when she'd come pick me up, and then my mom said I didn't have to go anymore. So I stopped going to a babysitter at eight years old. <sighs> I hid Man. under the couch when she would come. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. Trauma with Emily. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to Emily's Corner. It's just under noon and we're getting to some heavy trauma. <laughs> Did you see the arm get broken? No, that was. And it's just under the surface. That was uh, <laughs> after I had already left. She was the little sister of a boy that I remember going when, when I was eight. Oh, and so it was after you were. It was after I was there, but then. She did have my little brother for a little while because my mom couldn't afford yeah. regular daycare. Well, and he was so much younger. Mm-hmm. Oof, she was terrible. like, uh, she liked us for some reason. So I didn't ever get it as bad as the other kids. But I mean, I still, right. I still have memories Oof. of broken wooden spoons and things. But yeah, she was a nightmare. She talked to somebody about that. No, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm good. The charges are as follow. Z. Tingly tongue, tingly tongue. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Exactly. I don't know. I didn't know if it was a big one or not. No, I was going to say whatever, like the the, The Seattle. The Tacoma Dome or something. Yeah, okay. The Tacoma Dome. (laughs) Grave digger. This Saturday, three to six. I saw Reba McIntyre perform there. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. 
If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>